0: Joseph sought the Lord his God with all his heart. God laid on him a burden he would bear, yet not alone. The Lord was with this holy man to bring to pass his master plan through foreign lands. God walked beside his own. I'll never leave you, never forsake you. By water still and pastures green, I'll often take you. But when I break you, so Let my name be glorified, I'll never leave you, never forsake you. Though fires and floods would seem to hide his plan for you, Trials and afflictions seem to take away your song Though you may never understand just trust in his upholding hand in time you'll learn he's been there all along I'll never leave you never Never forsake you by water still and pastures green, I'll often take you, but when I break you so that my name be glorified, I'll never leave you, I'll never leave Well, oh okay.
1: The Time of Sinking is probably not one of Pastor's favorite songs, but it is one of mine. There is uh, some special significance behind it. Back in history, um, during the Keswick revivals, they uh, had an invitation, and that song actually has 14 verses to it. And the invitation took all 14 verses to go through, and then they started over again. And uh, honestly, that, that would be a dream. <laughs> so, you know, to see people getting right with God and, and worshiping God that it takes so long that you could sing through 14 verses of a song. And there are some amazing verses in that song that aren't in our hymn book. So. But let's go ahead and dismiss the kids ages four years old through fourth grade. Four years old through fourth grade. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter number two. Genesis chapter number two. Last week I started half of a message on last, last Sunday evening on marriage before the fall. So this is before mankind falls into sin, and we kind of laid the foundation for how do we know that there is an authority structure within marriage even before sin entered into the picture. Uh, But today I wanted to look at the actual institution of marriage and how God created marriage to begin with in Genesis chapter 2 verses 18-18 through 25 let's go ahead and read those again it says and the lord god said it is not good that man should be alone i will make him an help meet for him and out of the ground the lord god formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto adam to see what he would call them and whatsoever adam called every living creature that was the name thereof and adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field but for adam there was not found an help meet for him the man and his wife, and we're not ashamed. Now, marriage is an important topic, I think, for us to deal with, for us to understand what does the Bible say about about marriage. I think our culture has tried to redefine it and make it into something different, but the Bible has to be the Christian's basis for how they understand marriage. And the most obvious of the reasons that I think why marriage is important is because most of us in here are married, or we're married, or want to be married, or maybe you don't want to be married, okay, so, but all of us relate to this idea in some way, in some fashion, and as we have seen over the past couple weeks, the marriage relationship was established all the way back at the beginning, but I think even then, its importance was not fully known. If you you read Ephesians chapter 5, Paul quotes this exact text right here that we just read in five verse 31 through 32 said for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they two shall be one flesh and then he says this is a great mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the church according to Paul one of the reasons marriage is so important is because it's a picture of our relationship with God the Christ and his bride. That was a mystery all the way back in Genesis chapter number two, but we see it now clearly in, in in the church today. And so all marriages in some way are a picture that points to the relationship of God and his people. And that is why the institution of marriage is so important to understand what the Bible teaches and how that pictures the relationship of Jesus Christ and his church. So if marriage is such an important role, and it's a special relationship, we should be especially concerned to know what does the Bible say about marriage and what is it intended to be like. I, I looked up some stats online just to see what are some of the other benefits of marriage. Okay, one of them, one of them is uh, according to WebMD. Okay, this is a good doctor's website. Anybody debate WebMD? No, okay. So <laughs> WebMD says, most men always benefit from mar- being married because they start eating right. They start going to the doctors because their wives make them. And they stop bungee jumping, except for Mr. Tillman. He jumps out of airplanes still. Okay, So <laughs> they stop doing risky behaviors usually. And so men start living a little bit more of a healthy lifestyle because they got married. Right? Marriage.com said marriage gives you a partner who has committed to being with you through good and bad times. That's actually the essential basis of marriage. Other relationships... They can be committed relationships, but there isn't a verbal agreement to say, I'm committed to you through thick and thin. Marriage vows include for richer or for poorer, right? And so marriage gives you the benefit of knowing that you have a partner who has committed to being with you through the good and the bad times. The Heritage Foundation said marriage is good for a healthy society, families, and culture. And we honestly, we see the opposite of that today. Because we see marriage has broken down in our society and what has our culture done it has followed along suit, and it is broken down as well but what makes marriage so important is that first of all it is god's design this is how god designed things to be and secondly it reflects his relationship with us so this morning we're going to take a look at the pattern for marriage found in genesis chapter 2 verses 18 through 25 and i'm going to give you five principles about marriage from this text The first one is this, principle number one. Marriage was instituted by God throughout all the creation narratives, right? You remember the story of creation? God creates light, and what does he say? It's good, right? He creates animals, and what does he say? It's good. He creates the trees and the flowers and all those things, and he says what? It is good, right? And everything in creation was declared to be good until we get to our text right here. We find for the first time, God doesn't say it is good. He tells us something is not good. In verse number 18, chapter 2, verse number 18, it says, And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And I kind of think of it like an artist painting a picture, right? You got Picasso, who's missing an ear. Okay, anyway, so Picasso painting a picture. And he looks at his picture and he's missing something. Now my mind just went to Bob Ross for some reason. Fluffy little clouds, okay? So, and he's missing something in the picture. And so he picks up his brush and he adds that little fluffy little cloud. And now it's perfect, right? It is complete picture, the way it was intended to be. And as God is creating the world, he has created all these beautiful good things. But he comes across Adam and he says there's something not quite done, not quite right about this. And so he adds that perfect little touch at the end. And from this, we see here that God sees this need and he begins to work on it because men and women were not made to live in isolation. They were made for relationships. And as, as we'll see next week, singleness can be a part of God's will, but that is the exception. It is not the rule. That is, that, that's out, it's, it's the outliers, basically. God generally created mankind to be married. In verses nineteen through twenty it says, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them again unto Adam to see what he would call them, and whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field, and but for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. Now, I have to ask myself, why why are these verses tucked into this section right here? Why couldn't they have occurred elsewhere at some other point in the creation narratives? Why does God bring all the the animals to Adam, and Adam names him? I think God did this for a reason. Adam is going along, and he sees two giraffes, right? Over there, there's two giraffes. Over here, there's two little lions. Not little lions, big lions, okay? (laughs) Two little lambs, you know? Or two monkeys, two horses, two cows, And there's a pattern starting to develop. Things come in twos, and they come male and they come female, right? And the fact that these verses are tucked into this passage highlights the fact that God must have wanted Adam to see his need for what was missing. God didn't just say, I I see this need and and I'm going to meet this need. God wanted Adam to see this need in his lives. Honestly, men, we can be kind of oblivious sometimes, right? I think most men don't realize they need to get married until they have to do their own dishes and wash their own clothes, right? Okay, so they get to Bible college, and I'm not saying, ladies, that's all you're for, okay? That's not what I'm saying, but men are oblivious, and they just don't see it until they get to that point that they have to take care of these details, and so God was trying to show Adam, you have a need. This is something I have created you for we looked elsewhere that Eve was called his help meet. He was the suitable counterpart for Adam. Adam needed her in his life. And so God helps Adam to see his need. But then in verse number 21, it says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. So here we see God not only shows Adam the need... But God supplies the, 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 uh, the needed thing, okay? God puts Adam to sleep. I don't know why God chose to do it this way. Perhaps, maybe, he wanted Adam to look to God to supply the need for a wife. I think a lot of times we can get so concerned, so consumed with finding a spouse that we take it out of God's hands and we do our own thing. And God was maybe possibly putting Adam to sleep to, to show him that I'm the one bringing this to you. Depend on me to bring that, that spouse for you. So some of us get bent out of shape trying to find a wife, and we never stop asking God to send us a wife. God knows your need. That's the thing. That's the point here. God knows your need, and he knows where you are. Okay, there, there's no point in jumping somewhere else outside the will of God to find a spouse. Okay? God, If you're where God wants you to be, God will bring the one that he wants you to, to have in the right time. And I'm, and I'm not saying don't look. Okay, Proverbs 1822. All the men quote it for No, okay, so he that findeth findeth a good thing. Well, what what kind of a word is findeth? It's not sitting back on your couch eating potato chips waiting for God to drop her in your lap, is it? No, okay. That's not that's not what's going on here. Findeth is an active word. It's looking, it's going out and trying to find this person. But you do it in our looking. We should be asking God to lead us to the right one, to guide us. I think of the story of uh It was a Limelech with Isaac and Rebekah, and he goes out and he's looking for a wife for Isaac, and what does he do? He stops and he prays to God and says, Lord, show me the one that you want for my master Abraham's son Isaac, okay? And God reveals, God supplies the need in this case, and so Adam was put to sleep. And in verse 22 it says, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. So not only did God supply the need and create it, but this is key to this point right here. God brought her onto the man. God instituted this action of marriage. These verses establish the beginning of marriage and show God revealing the need for marriage, supplying a wife, and then bringing her to him to be his wife. So in this very first marriage, we see that God instituted marriage. Today, marriage is often redefined by by culture all around the world. In America, uh, marriage can be between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, okay? In uh, Middle Eastern countries, you could have a man and 50 women, okay? In Bhutan, surprisingly, you can have one woman and five men, okay? The other way around. And so our cult, our world tries to redefine marriage, but God is the one who instituted it. And God created marriage to be between one man and one woman. And that is how he created things in the beginning here in the text. That's principle number one. God instituted it. It's not a secular thing, it's not, it's not a government thing, it is God-instituted, okay? Principle number two, marriage involves leaving something behind. Marriage involves leaving something behind, we're going to spend most of our time in verse number 24 here. Therefore, because of this, shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The phrase here is, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. Some of the biggest battles in marriages early on during the first few years are the result of this right here. A failure to obey this. And uh, when a man and a woman get married, they form a new family unit. And that means they need to split off from the previous family in some way. Now understand me, I'm not saying we ignore our families or our in-laws. That's not what I'm saying, okay? But we are a new couple. Now, and my spouse has to be the priority in my relationship. Your husband and your wife come first before any other relationship other than God himself, okay? For some, this leaving process be- begins before marriage because some, some people move out of the home before they get married. And so it started, right? But not everybody's story is exactly the same in this area. But one thing is for sure, you, if you're gonna have a healthy marriage, you've gotta leave something behind. You've gotta leave home behind. And the word leave here means literally what it says, to leave behind or to let go, okay? I think that letting go idea speaks a little bit more to where our struggles oftentimes are. This is a command to let go of those ties that keep you from forming a new relationship with your spouse. This isn't just moving out of the house, okay? Leaving father and mother occurs on many different levels. First of all, physically, okay? Obviously, if you've got married Pro, uh, the wife probably shouldn't go home and live with her parents and the husband go live with his parents and after they've gotten married they probably should move in together right okay because they're married that's a good thing okay and i honestly there there's a problem though that i think that a lot of couples slip into these days when they first get married it's hard to make ends meet right it's hard to come up with all the money to support yourself as a young couple and so the temptation is we're going to move in with mom and dad for now okay and that adds layers of problems to the relationship. I'm not saying never do it, but what I'm saying is this, that as soon as you have two families living under the same roof, there's always going to be conflict, always. And what you've done to your marriage is you've now submitted your marriage to the authority of your parents because you're living under their roof. They have the say of what goes on here, right? Okay, so you've automatically put, your, put another authority figure into your marriage relationship and you will truly not be your own family unit until you move out, okay? So this also touches on a wife who, when she gets married, she's constantly running to her parents for advice and for, uh, or just always at their, at their house and never at home with her husband. That that can lead to problems within the marriage. Now, so there, like I said, there are circumstances where some of these things need to happen. Sometimes you have to. Like, let's say we go, Great Depression in America, okay? Most of us will probably have to move in with all of, we'll we'll just all live here in the church, okay? okay, it's not going to be easy to survive, right? And And circumstances sometimes make things unideal, but those should be viewed as temporary seasons of life, not as permanent states within your marriage, okay? So we need to, we need to obviously, first of all, physically leave. The second one is relationally. Marriage creates a new relationship, and your spouse is now, Number one priority other than God. Dad's not number one. Mom's not number one anymore. Your spouse is. And it's not helpful for you to be constantly comparing your spouse to your parents. This is the way my parents always did it. This is the way my mom cooked spaghetti, okay? So Katie and I, we merged our recipes for lasagna and spaghetti. So she, her family was a little bit sweeter on it, and I don't like sweet lasagna so, and spaghetti. So we, we kind of merged these things together. But it's not healthy to be constantly comparing. There's a dead spot here, a hole. Anyways, okay, so it's not healthy to be constantly comparing your spouse to your parents, your mom's cooking, any, anything. This is this is how my dad worked on his cars, or this is how my dad put up his tools and how he did things. It's not healthy for your marriage. Marriage is a blending of two c- cultural backgrounds, but you need to create your own family culture. Just because your mom cooked something a certain way and your dad did something a certain way doesn't mean your spouse has to do it that way. So you separate physically, you separate relationally, separate emotionally, okay? Okay. Maybe you had a good relationship with your parents. And I'm glad. That's great. That's something to be praised. But that also carries along with it a negative side effect that oftentimes the children, when they get married, are constantly going to their parents for that emotional support. They're texting. They're calling every day to talk to their parents after they've been married. To, and when there's a problem, they don't go to their husband. They go to their mom and ask their mom's advice. As long as you're continuing to do that, you are not leaving father and mother behind. You are creating a rift between your marriage and you're not becoming a healthy marriage. It's not wrong to talk to your parents about things, okay? Understand, everything I'm saying, it's not (laughs) wrong to talk to your parents. But whose advice do you get first? Whose advice do you go to first? When things go wrong, your husband should be the one that you can depend on, that you can lean on. And parents, you need to be awfully careful not to constantly be intruding into the marriage of your children too much or too often help your children make that transition i think it's actually harder for parents than it is for the kids sometimes to just let go okay so you need to leave physically relationally emotionally fourthly financially don't fall into the trap of depending on your parents financially to survive your first few years of marriage this inevitably leads to other forms of dependence within the marriage so when you first get married you're gonna have to do without some things. I think that's, that's the biggest problem a lot of young couples face. They expect to have everything that mom had after 30 years of marriage, okay? You don't need all that. You can do without some of that th- stuff. You can work towards it over time. Don't, don't put yourself into a bind where you are, you are now compromising your marriage because you have become financially dependent on your parents. And on, honestly, leaving, leaving home Leaving your parents financially, this is kind of a tangible boundary that you can set up within your marriage that you need to erect. Sometimes, sometimes you need to move away geographically. You need to leave geographically because there are some relationships that just can't be fixed as long as two people are sitting right beside each other, okay? I had a college professor in Bible college. He said you should never live in the same town as your parents. I don't agree with him, okay? So, but he was hitting at something. As long as you are physically there and your parents are constantly getting involved in the marriage, you're not going to be able to have the marriage that God wants you to have. You're not going to be able to leave that relationship behind. And so you you have to be able to set up a boundary, okay? And so sometimes there may be times when you just need, you need to move away in order to create that. That's all part of leaving, leaving those things behind. All of this means that you're going to have to set boundaries within your relationship between you. And your parents, know that there are lines that they cannot cross. For your marriage to be your marriage, they cannot be the third wheel in that You have to leave father and mother behind. Third principle, principle number three. Not only does marriage involve leaving, but it involves cleaving, okay? Verse 24, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The word cleave means to cling to, to stick to, okay? It's a, or to hold tenaciously to or firmly to. Marriage is intended to be a little clingy, okay? I know you're probably not thinking that, but it's intended to be a little bit clingy. And if you got a problem with clinginess, you probably shouldn't have gotten married to begin with or just don't, okay? So, but it's that's just how things are. You're intended to cling together. The best illustration of this is like glue, okay? I've used this illustration, but you take two pieces of paper and you glue them together, Right? Okay, they're stuck together. You could possibly split the two apart but what's going to happen to those pieces of paper? They're gonna rip they're, they're going to be hurt gonna, there's going to be damage when you do so And so marriage involves a cleaving a gluing together of the two people and you could look at this negatively and positively. The negative side to this is a cleaving relationship shouldn't lead to divorce okay divorce is the opposite of cleaving okay I mentioned this in the past this is, why God's intention from the beginning is that no one would ever get divorced. In fact, Jesus, in Matthew 19, verses 5 through 6, uses these passages as his proof text for why they shouldn't get divorced. And he says, and, he sa- and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain but one flesh. Where, what therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And a few verses later, he taught in verse nine, and I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except to be for fornication and shall marry another, committeth adultery and whoso marrieth her that is put away, doth commit adultery. There are, and and I'll preach on this. There's going to be a three part series on, on divorce and, and remarriage. There are legitimate reasons to get divorced, but it is not the way that God created things to be. That was not the foundation. God created marriage to be a blessing, to be enjoyed, and and he created it to be forever, right? Cleaving includes this idea of not breaking it apart. In order for something to be glued, you can't pull it apart, okay? That's the negative. But here's the thing I want to leave you with if you've you've been divorced, okay? God's mercies are new every morning. God, God is faithful to you now. Today is a new day. And I challenge you in, in, in a current relationship, if you're in a current relationship, to cling and cleave to the person that God has you with today. A cleaving The second side, the positive side to this, though, is that a cleaving relationship is one that is close. It is a close relationship. You should be drawing closer to your spouse day by day. For a life, that isn't necessarily always going to mean uh, sexual intimacy intimacy, right? Wives want to have face-to-face contact with their spouse, meaning a connection between husband and wife. That means you got to talk, okay? Guys, if you don't talk, you got to talk. You got to listen to what they say. You got to mean what you say in response. Don't say, "Uh uh-huh, honey, okay, and then flip the TV channel, okay? So don't play a video game while you're trying to talk to your wife. Just put it down, okay? I struggle with this all the time because usually Katie wants to talk to me while I'm already doing something, so I've got to purposefully make the decision Put my phone down, put the Xbox away, put the TV away, put the book away, put whatever it is away, because this relationship is more important than all those other things, and I need to invest in drawing closer to my spouse day by day, and for a wife, that closeness means communication. Remember last week when we talked about seeking to help our wives flourish? That's also a part of this. Cleaving to your wife includes seeking her benefit, her her good, drawing closer to her, for the men, men need to know that they're appreciated and respected. If you're constantly trying to tear them down, is that cleaving? If you're, if you're pulling them down, if you're tearing at that other piece of paper, you're the, you're, you're the paper and you're tearing at it, you're, it's not the cleaving type of relationship. You can't be tearing them down, criticizing, and constantly complaining. They will not feel that connection with you. And this is really, this is the opposite side of leaving. Leaving is, I'm leaving this behind, but now I am clinging to my new spouse, my new relationship that God has me in. So you must place your dependence in your spouse. The fourth principle, principle number four. Marriage involves, and I, I made this rhyme, I heard somebody else say it, but it involves leaving, it involves cleaving, now it involves weaving, okay? That's that's the word, so you can remember it. Leaving, cleaving, and weaving. Proverbs 2, verse or Genesis 2, verse 24, the last phrase here. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. This one flesh type of relationship speaks of at least two aspects in this relationship. I I love this quote by Matthew Henry. I found it this week. But the woman was not made of his head to rule over him, nor of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him and under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. Beloved. God made woman from the flesh of the man. He could have made her separately, right? He could have pulled another piece of dirt and breathed more life into that new piece of dirt and said, boom, woman, right? But what did God do? God took her from the man, out of the man. Verse 23 says here, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. This is the one that belongs with him. She is part of his life. I think all, all this ties together of going through life together is a, is a, is a part of this picture. 1 Peter 3, verse 7 says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, there's a debate about that phrase, the heirs of the, together of the grace of life. But I believe at the very minimum, this is what it's saying you share life together. I think every, every husband and every wife is an heir of life together. They are, they're living their lives together. And that is an important part of this type of relationship. But this is also uh, sexual intimacy that is being implied here. And I'm not gonna camp on this topic. I'm not gonna go into detail. There will be a future message on this topic, okay? I'm promising you that. But we will dismiss all the kids and all the teenagers, and they will have a separate program. And we will talk about this because it is in the Bible and it needs to be talked about. But in marriage, this type of interaction is a necessary component of marriage. Failure to fulfill these desires of your spouse is called in the New Testament defrauding them, okay? Not, not fulfilling your obligations to them. And the consequences of doing so is opening them up for temptation of the devil, So one of the main reasons that God created marriage in Genesis 1, if we look back at Genesis 1, verse 26 through 27. And God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. One of the reasons God created mankind, one of the command, first commands he gave them was that they would be fruitful and multiply. And so, included within marriage is this idea of procreation, having children. Obviously, that can't always happen, and I'll have a message on that, okay? And we, we'll look at that in another message. But as a general rule, this is how God created marriages to function. And it is, the intended, it is intended, marriages are intended to produce an offspring. Principle number five. Back in Genesis 2, let's read verse number 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Principle number five is marriages should involve no shame. They should be places where a husband and a wife can go and feel perfectly comfortable with one another because they feel secure and they feel safe. There are only so many people that I... that I Actually, there's one, okay? So there's only one person in this world that I would not wear clothes in front of, and that is my wife, okay? So every other person, I'm going to wear clothes, and you guys should be grateful for that, right? But that is that just speaks to this, this idea that I am comfortable with my wife and nobody else has that type of a relationship with me. And as we see Adam and Eve in the beginning, they were both naked and... We're not ashamed. They didn't have any shame being, being this way. The physical relationship of a husband and wife should not be something to be ashamed of, right? It should be something that they can feel comfortable and confident in. A biblical view of human sexuality in the marriage relationship does not have a place for prudishness within the marriage. And I take here the literal sense of, of being naked in front of one another. They were not ashamed. But shame comes into relationships when we fear that we will be rejected. When they see our imperfections, whether it's physically, personally, um, uh, intellectually, emotionally, when this person sees these imperfections, they're going to judge me. They're not going to accept me the way that I am. And that's why I feel shame, because I'm afraid of what people are going to think when they see me. And I think this principle speaks to the greater truth that marriage should be the type of relationship where a husband and a wife can be secure in their relationship. There should be no shame. And my, my, my friends may ignore me and stop calling me because of my imperfections. My boss might fire me because of my imperfections. But I should be able to come home and know that my wife is there for me through the thick and the thin, for better or for worse, in spite of all the things that are wrong with me. My wife should be by my side even when I fail. Is your home a safe place for your husband or wife to come when the world is crashing in on them? That's the, that's the question right here. So five principles about marriage. First of all, marriage um, is, was got, intended by God. Marriage involves a leaving. It involves a cleaving. It involves a weaving. And marriage should be a safe place where there is no shame between the husband and the wife. There is an openness between them. Marriage is a blessing given by God. In our society, it really isn't viewed that way by most. And part of that is because people have removed God from their marriages. We talked about last Sunday evening, the little triangle diagram. The closer the husband and wife get to God, the closer they'll get to each other. Well, what happens when you remove that top of the triangle? You get rid of God altogether. Marriage doesn't function the way that it's supposed to. There can be good marriages between lost people, but there can't be great marriages between lost people because they're missing that necessary element. And that is God. God created marriage to be enjoyed to be a blessing, and to be part of what draws us closer to God, and it also helps create make us into the people that we need to be. So without God, what, what is the purpose for getting married? Without God, how do we know our husbands, how, how husbands and wives should function within marriage? Without God, how do we see how important marriage is intended to be? And obviously, obviously the, like I said, the world gets married, and they have their answers to these questions, but for the Christian, we want to make sure that we are following God's pattern. For marriage, which he set up all the way back in Genesis chapter number two. After all, who better to ask about marriage than the one who created it? He's the one who defines it. He's the one who tells us how it should work, what it should look like. And as a Christian, I should be hopefully submitting myself to that to that authority, the authority of God, and what my marriage should be. It's going to have a time of invitation this morning. No marriage.